Hear the word of God. Genesis chapter 3. God's word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be powerfully present, to reign over our hearts, our ears, our minds, and over my mouth as I seek to preach your holy word. Your word does not return void. Make us, Father, willing listeners and receivers of it. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So if you were to have a recording device in my wife and I's car, pretty much any day, you might hear a conversation, something like this, when we happen to be late to, let's say, a dinner. It's because you took too long getting ready. No, it's because you hadn't gotten yourself ready while... I was getting myself ready. It's because you took the wrong turn. No. It's because you were talking when I was trying to read the map. It's because you said yes to this thing in the first place. No. It's because you told me to. No. It's because you made these friends, not me. And we can go on and on and on. And on like this. But these are conversations, I uh, confess, are very similar to conversations I have with my wife all of the time. We seem to be very, very good at 
blaming one another, at pointing out the fault when things go wrong. We do it in our marriages. Our kids do it all of the time. You can never get a straight answer when you ask, what happened when your kids are crying? It's the longest story you've ever heard. But, but step back, zoom out, and look at our world. Every time catastrophes happen, every time uh, some, some devious thing happens, we all cry out, who's to blame? And we point at all different things. When the, when the blame points at, at our side, our political viewpoint, then we point back and say, no, it goes to you and your viewpoint. And we have Facebook pages just full of venom towards one another when these problems come up. So we see blame everywhere. We are all well-versed and well-trained in blame. Also, we are well-versed in shame. Blame and shame go together. All of us, even when we don't even understand why, feel ashamed of something, feel like we want to hide from something. With all of this blame, we can't avoid some of it coming back to us. And so in a world full of blame, we are people full of shame. Why? Why is blame and shame so familiar to all of us? I don't have to give you explanation on what shame feels like. I don't have to give you an explanation of what blame is. You've already come trained in those subjects. So why? Why is blame so universal? The last time we were in Genesis, we spent our time looking at the sin that that Eve and Adam committed uh, in verses uh, 3, 1 through 8. And we saw sin's nature. We saw that sin is slithery. That sin is treasonous, and that sin is irreversible. And now that sin has been brought into the world, its first uh, uh, mate comes into the world with it. The question, who's to blame? Today we are going to look at the subject of blame as we are going through this series called The Reason Why. The reason we call this series The Reason Why is everything that we need to understand the world that we live in and the way that we are in this world finds its explanation and its seed in the first three chapters of Genesis. And as we live in a world full of blame and shame, we must go back to this passage to recognize the reason why. The reason why we live in a world of blame and shame is because blame points to our fallenness. The fall did not just happen to Adam, it happened to all of us. There is a key question that this text poses for every single one of us. It has great gravity. It cannot be dismissed. That question is, in the light of the blame that we know for ourselves, how? Will we ever stand before a holy God? 
How can we be a subject of blame and stand before the one that calls us to be blameless? That is an existential question because it is a question that every single one of us must deal with. We will face a holy God. And before we face that holy God, we must understand blame. We must understand our blame. And I believe in the text today, we are going to see that our blame points in four directions. And as we understand these four directions that blame points, we hopefully will come to a place where we can see the escape from blame. Let's look at the first direction that blame points. It points back. Blame points back to how we should be, which is righteous or obedient. Yes, righteous or obedient. You can write down either one of them. Blame points us to how we should be. When, when blame comes in the picture, it only arises when there has been a violation of a standard, when something has happened that shouldn't have happened. And so when we look at verse 11, we see uh, th- these words. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not To eat. You see, it's because the standard was violated that blame arises. Now, verse 11 tells us that God is speaking to Adam. God is speaking to Adam. But if we read and and, and paid attention to the the sermon from a couple weeks ago, most of the, the activity was centered between the serpent and the woman and Eve. Why, when it comes to blame, is Adam getting the grilling? Do you have that question? Why doesn't he go to Eve? Eve was the first one to eat. Eve was the first one to be deceived. Eve was the one that handed the fruit to Adam. Why does God start with Adam? Look at at verse 6. Let's let's see how it plays out. There's just a sequence of events that happen here in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The narrative has all of these events put in sequence. The point of irreversibility, the point of guilt comes not after the words, and she ate. It comes after the words, and he ate. Then they knew that they were naked. Why does it go in that order? Why does it fall on Adam's act? Why is Adam the focus? Why, when we talk about the doctrine of original sin, do we call it the fall of Adam? We must deal with the fact that Adam is the the source of the original sin because Adam was responsible to guard his wife and the garden. 
Go back to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Before Eve is created, we have this uh, instruction to the man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, Adam was the one that was given these instructions. He was entrusted with these words and these commandments first. And so in that we see he bore the responsibility of keeping and guarding the garden and of instructing. So when we look back and we look at blame, when we try to understand why Adam is to blame, we look back on this passage and I think we see clearly how Adam should have behaved. First, look at verse 2. Verse 2, the serpent comes to the woman and, and, and uh, talks about the, the forbidden tree. And the woman says in verse 2, uh, God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now let me ask you, is that what God said? Go back and look at verses 2, 16, and 17. God said, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The woman has not got the exact commandment that God spoke to Adam. When we look at at, uh, Eve's answer, um, Ken Matthews' commentary brought out five deviations that are evident in the woman's answer. Uh, One, he shows us uh, that she loses the whole permissiveness of the command, that that you can eat of any of the uh, trees of the garden. You can eat freely. She doesn't say anything about that. Second, she misses uh, the point by focusing on the location of the tree rather than its significance. Third, when she refers to it, it is uh, referring to God and not to the covenant Lord. Fourth, she adds the phrase, you must not touch it, which is nowhere in the original command. And fifth, she omitted the urgency of the command, which was, you will surely die. There are five things in her repeating of the one command of God that are deviations of what God actually said. But here's the thing. The command was given to Adam. Eve wasn't there to hear the original command. So one of two things happened here. Either Adam taught the command poorly or wrongly, or second, Adam, who was there the whole time, failed to correct Eve where she was wrong in quoting the commandment. At any rate, Adam was to teach the word. And we see he failed. Second, we see that he is to guard the garden. The word keep can also be translated guard. The Hebrew word is shamar. What does it mean that Adam was to guard the garden? I think it's very significant to recognize the next two instances of guard in the book of Genesis occur in Uh, Genesis 4, chapter 9, 
chapter 4, verse 9, where uh, Cain answers back to God, Am I my brother's keeper? Keeper is the same word for guard. And right there, it's very evident that the idea of guard is to protect, to keep safe the person that's, that's your blood relative. But even more significantly, in chapter 3, verse 25, after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, a cherubim is put at the, at the front of the garden to guard the garden from being re-entered by Adam and Eve. You see, guard has a, has a, a militaristic aspect to it. He was to guard the garden. And, and here's something very important. Adam was prepared. He was trained to guard the garden. Look at verse 1, uh, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You might say, well, nobody was prepared for the serpent. But look back up in chapter 2, verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, of which the snake is one of them. In 3.1. Here's the thing. God had given Adam the job of naming every beast of the field to know every beast of the field. And when the snake comes into the garden acting crafty, clearly acting differently than the snake that he named, he should have known this is not right. But he allowed the snake to slither right into the garden, right up to Eve, and start a conversation. We see Adam failing to guard the garden. Third, Adam is failing to subdue the garden. Go back to chapter 1, verse 28. This is the the commandment given uh, to the first people. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. The word subdue is to take control of a creation that may be at times resistant. The same word for subdue is used in the book of Joshua to describe the conquest. Describe the putting down of the Canaanites and the, and the idolaters. It is, it is a term that can entail force. Adam was given a command to subdue, if necessary, with force. And so there's this snake speaking lies, tempting and deceiving against the Lord God in the garden in front of the man who has been called to subdue whatever is not under control. What should he have done? What was his job? Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, uh, speaking to the serpent, that uh, one is going to come who will crush your head. When the snake comes in speaking lies to the kingdom of God, Adam, the subduer, was to take that snake and crush its head. But it failed. He failed to subdue. And then fourth, we see 
Adam was supposed to lead. He was supposed to lead. But where is he in this story? He shows up at the very end. And Adam, who was with her, and he ate. Adam, who has been in charge of guarding and keeping and teaching, is to be there leading And he is following. In fact, he is worse than following. He is tagging along. He is going along with this great subversion of the garden without a word. When we look at how Adam behaved next to what he has been commanded to do, we see that instead of protecting, he chose passivity. Instead of doing, He chose to do nothing. Instead of duty, he chose dereliction. Adam was to be responsible and righteous, but he was derelict and disobedient. Adam shows us a very common condition that uh, I think nearly all men struggle with, myself included. It is the condition of passivity. Male passivity is common. Go along to get along. Avoid confrontation. Acquiesce. Just get the game. Don't cause a stir. We see in Adam the root of passivity. And we also see It is so serious. Passivity in men is what led to the garden being overtaken. It led to the invasion of sin because the one who was supposed to do did nothing. And we are all now living in the consequences of that dereliction. You can see passivity all through the Bible. When Abraham and Sarah are together and they can't figure out how God's promise is going to be fulfilled, Sarah says, well, why don't you sleep with Hagar? Have a baby with her. Abraham should have said, no, that's not how it works. But instead, he passively went along and said, okay, let's go that way. When David had had incest in his house, that required him to to speak up and to judge and to act, he did nothing. So that instead, civil war broke out. Perhaps the worst case, the worst example of passivity goes to Pontius Pilate, who famously cannot make a decision. And so what does he do? What's the symbol of Pontius Pilate? Washing his hands. Like that is clever. That is the epitome of passivity. The the, the righteous one was put on the cross because a man took the passive role. Hand washing is blameworthy. I bring this up to warn and exhort men Fathers, husbands, reject passivity. Do your duty. Do not be found the last day as derelict, as the acquiescer of the snake in the garden. 
Know your job and do your job. Blame requires a right way. Blame requires that there is a should that we miss. When we talk about blame, we are talking about real righteousness. When we talk about blame amongst ourselves, we are admitting there is a standard. There is a right way. There is a reason someone should be blamed. When we face blame, we face our unrighteousness, our falling short. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we see that first blame points back to how we should be. But more, blame points inside to what we are, depraved. Blame points to what we are, depraved. Now, that's not a word that we like hearing. It's not a word we use very often, but it is the right word. Depraved means corrupted. And depraved and corrupted are exactly what we see happening immediately when they ate. Look at verse 7. Immediately they knew that they were naked. The moment of the transgression led to the complete knowledge that they were no longer innocent. They knew they were sinners. They discovered something that we all need to recognize. The sin doesn't live in the fruit The sin doesn't live on the hand. The sin doesn't live with the lips that taste. The sin isn't just the act. The sin goes into the heart. The sin affects the soul. It corrupts the whole self. There's an illustration about, imagine you had a a 50-gallon drum of sewage and a 50-gallon drum of the finest wine you could find. Take a spoonful of the fine wine and put it into the vat of sewage. What do you have? You have sewage. The wine doesn't change the sewage. Take a spoonful of the sewage and put it into the vat of perfect wine. And what is the wine? All of it, immediately, with the smallest dose, becomes corrupted filth. That is the truth of sin. It takes your vessel and makes you sinful. The whole becomes ruined and gone. All of that innocence, that nakedness and unashamed is replaced immediately with what? What do they suddenly have the moment that they have eaten the fruit? They have shame. They have shame. I think it's interesting, the question that that God asks, 
Who told you that you were naked? Who told them that they were naked? There's no, the serpent doesn't say, aha, you're naked. The who told you you were naked was the voice of the conscience that has just become roaring to life. You are naked and you should be very ashamed. That comes from themselves. That is the voice that erupts the moment that the sin occurs. Who told you? It's themselves. It's self-knowledge. They are now being ashamed. They know shame. And I think it's fascinating that the image that we we use is, is the idea of nakedness. They are now afraid to be naked. They don't want to be naked. Why is why is nakedness? Such a provocative image here. None of us chose to be naked. The first thing we think about in the day is, how can I get myself clothed? (laughs) How can I cover this up? Because naked is to be seen, is to be known all the way in. We cover up because we know if we were uncovered, we would be seen. I mean, imagine if there was a day where accidentally all the thoughts inside your head were out loud. You would move (laughs) to Russia immediately, as fast as you could. You'd leave everything behind. Because when you're exposed, when you're naked, you don't want to be seen. Because shame is so much a part of you. When I was an engineer, we had the the task of installing safety showers at a job site. And the guy that was selling the safety showers told us we had to buy the shower curtain, which was sold separately. I always got to make money. And we laughed. We, We giggled. Like, who really cares about the shower curtain when they're covered in acid and they need to get themselves clean or they're going to die? And the guy told me a story that's lasted with me. He says, you have to buy it. Because there was a person just a couple years ago who covered themselves in toxic stuff, burning alive with this material that was on her. But she would not take off her clothes and get clean because there was no curtain to hide behind. And she died. Most of us would rather die than have who we really are inside exposed and made known. We are hiders. We are secret keepers. We are concealers. Because blame points to the inside of what we are. It points to to the real problem. It's like smoker's lung. Have you ever seen a smoker's lung? The, the, the picture is, you know, you want to think it's just the cigarette or it's just, uh, it's just this outside stuff that you can stop. But then when the surgeon goes in and shows you the lung, the core, it's totally lost. That is what blame creates in us, a, a corrupt 
hardened, blackened heart. And so it is fair to say we are depraved because our blame goes to our core. And how total is that? How total is the the depravity that comes to us? Well, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Actually, go ahead and let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 is fascinating. The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit and I ate. Do you hear what Adam, God's image bearer, is saying? He is saying, You should give me this woman. This whole mess is on you, God. What were you thinking? Do you see what that is? Adam, the image bearer of God, has turned on God and is pointing at God like he's the enemy. He's the problem. I mean, this is deep. God has not changed. He was there walking in the garden in peace and friendship. But the sin came in and we have to hide from him and we have to point the finger at him. A relationship of love is now hostility. Sin turns us against God. Every single one of us has been angry at God about something, whether it be the doctrine of election or reprobation or whether it be something in our life that didn't work out or a tragedy. We have all said at some point or another, why God? And the reason is our default is sinful. Our heart is turned towards sin And that makes it turned against God. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, which is in my Bible, because I didn't put it on that piece of paper. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see, our sin, we love the sin, and that in, in, in necessity requires us to hate the lawgiver. And when we sin, what we are really saying is not, I want a little bit of fun, but I hate the lawgiver. Loving the sin is an act of hatred to God, and every one of us is guilty. So blame points inside. It shows that we are depraved. But more, blame points forward. Blame points to what we deserve, which is judgment. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God judged his creation, but how did he judge his creation? He used these words, you are good. You are very good. 
before sin entered the world, judgment was not a scary thing. But now that sin has entered the world, we fear judgment. Blame makes judgment frightening. As the first epistle of John tells us, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, blame is always mixed with fear, fear and hiding. Because we know if we are to be blamed, then we are in danger of judgment. And judgment is fair. Judgment is what blame deserves. I mean, we all want fair, you know. That's the first thing we cry out. But when we recognize that we are to blame, we recognize that the fair thing is that we are judged. And that is why we hide. And that is why we are afraid. And that is why we make excuses. Moreover, we know that judgment is unavoidable. God's word is on the line. What happened here was not just eating fruit. God said, did you eat of the fruit of which I commanded you not to eat? It is God's word that is on the line here. The question is, is God going to stand behind his word? God has to stand behind his word. Imagine a judge who does not keep the law. A judge who who does not uphold the law in his judgments. The judge becomes corrupt. He is no judge at all. God has to keep his word for God to be God. If God does not keep his word, then he denies himself. And so when we find out that we are under judgment for violating God's word, we are in an unavoidable situation where we will face judgment. And that is where we are. That is where our blame points us. We are hiding and afraid. We are waiting for judgment. But finally, blame points outside. Blame points outside to what we need, which is justification. Blame points outside to justification. Now look again at verse 12. Adam is caught. Adam is cooked. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Pretty clever. Throw the woman in front of the bus. <laughs> That'll fix it. We can go on all, all happy. You can make me another woman, God. It was her fault. <laughs> you see, Adam reveals that he is doomed unless the blame goes to another. He recognizes that, and he scrambles quickly to make it the wife's fault. It doesn't work, 
But what it reveals to us when we talk about blame, the whole blame game that I started the sermon with, the whole fact that we're all quick to blame and shift blame, it reveals the core understanding that we all have that we cannot get away with. The blame game reveals that we know we need justification. We need declared not guilty. And the way that we do that in this world is to lawyer up and to point the blame. But in doing that, we are showing our greatest need to be justified, to be not guilty, to be declared clear in front of God's eyes. But we can't self-justify. We can't clear our account. We can't point all of the blame away. Our conscience knows we're guilty. And so our justification cannot come from inside which is depraved, it can only come from outside. And that is why we end today not with bad news, but with good news, with amazing news. You can be justified. You can be declared not guilty. You who are worthy of a thousand blames times a thousand can be declared blameless. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be just and the justifier, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here is the thing, Adam and all of us who are full of blame, who are full of guilt, who cannot justify ourselves, who stand before God with a heart that is depraved and a record of 10,000 times 10,000 violations of his holy word. He, by his grace, by his free love, sent his son, Jesus, who was righteous, blameless, perfect, and beautiful to his dying breath in his, God, in his father's eyes. And he put that son on the cross so that that son would have upon him all of our blame, all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness. All that separates us from God was placed upon him to make him a propitiation, a complete satisfaction of the debt of your sin. And so by him, you are justified. How? By faith, by believing in him, by turning from your self-justifications, your blame shifting, and saying, I am guilty, 
But I believe on the cross my sins were paid for and paid in full. I call upon Jesus to be my Savior. I claim his death as my death. His life as my life. And by that faith, by that faith alone, you become justified before God. You become blameless before God. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't need that? This is the answer to how will you stand before a holy God? You are blameworthy, but in him you are blameless. Have you put your faith in the gospel? Let me finish with these words that are true to all who have. Now to him, this is Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Have you received your justification in Christ? Have you put your faith in him? Have you allowed your blame to be canceled? It is offered to you freely by faith. Amen.